Captain Allen, can I now take you on to the time when you joined Australian National Airways? Why did you go to Australia? Well, my time in the Air Force was nearly up and I saw an advertisement uh, for suitable pilots to start an airline in Australia using multi-engined aeroplanes. There were not many multi-engine pilots about at that time. I was, as the RAF in those days were called, the first, uh, first pilot day and night uh, on multi-engined heavy bombers, so that uh, I was a suitable applicant. I applied, even though my time in the Air Force was not yet up. I was accepted uh, as one of the two pilots that they recruited from England. Lord Thompson, who was the Director General of Civil Aviation at that time, uh, and subsequently, as a matter of interest, went down with the R101, uh, agreed uh, or uh, that I could leave the Air Force. I went to Australia on a ship called the Esperance Bay, arrived in Australia towards the end of 1929, and joined Australian National Airways. What sort of a contract did you have at that time? I had a three-month contract at that time. Uh, if I was not suitable, then I got my passage home. And, and so at the end of three months, Charles Alm, who was the managing director of Australian National Airways at that time, uh, extended my contract for another six months. Uh, the, 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 what salary I got, I've forgotten at the moment. But it was, it was untold sums as far as I was concerned, having uh, only seen Air Force pay up to those days. I couldn't possibly spend all of it uh, the way I live. However, at the end of six months, I think the six months came up without me noticing the date. And it was some long time after the six months were up that I got a new contract for another 12 months. Now, in your days with the Australian National Airways, you were flying mainly on the Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne and Hobart services. What was life like with ANA at that time? Uh, we had aeroplanes which were built in Manchester by A.V. Rowe, and they were called the Avro 10. They were, at that time, a very efficient aeroplane, had three... Uh, Sidley engines in them and they were extremely reliable. In those days, flights from city to city started at 8am and ended when you got there. But 8am was a, 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 an hour at which it was a point of honour with all concerned that the aeroplane left at 8am, not one minute to or one minute after, at 8am. And its regularity was such that people set their watches in Manly and other places by the aeroplane, a thing you couldn't do today by any means, not even with a railway train. But in those days, the regularity that I now know was fantastic. The depression was upon us. 
and the aeroplane most of the times at the beginning were full of people to go to Brisbane and six months later then extended to Melbourne and at some later date, actually the date, uh, if I look in my logbook, to Launceston and subsequently to Hobart. The management were most appreciative of the efforts of the pilots and of course in those days the pilot uh, not only flew the aeroplane, he was responsible for many other things as well. When in April 31, oh, March, on 21st March 1931, was a very bad day indeed. I was in Melbourne, I picked up the Director General of Civil Aviation Colonel Brinsmead as a passenger and flew to Sydney. I remember the day quite well. The wind blew extremely strongly uh, and when we took off from Melbourne, Essendon, we went straight into cloud. We remained in the cloud. I, having laid off the necessary drift, having calculated uh, the effect that the wind would have, knowing it to be extremely strong. We flew in cloud until we were halfway between, uh, shall we say, 40 miles or so south of city before we saw the ground at all. We covered the ground from Melbourne to Sydney with a... Uh, southwest component sufficient to make it a very quick trip and when we landed I got in my motor car and went home Colonel Brinsmead went about his business by the time I arrived at my uh, digs uh, I had a telephone call to say to go back out the aerodrome again because the southbound flight had not arrived in Melbourne and it was now long overdue and and there was no report of it having landed anywhere. And uh, I th th refueled my aeroplane and first thing next morning with Kingsford Smith uh, went back down to Melbourne to find out uh, what went on. The story of the loss of the southern cloud, you know, has been told, you know, in other places. And, but as far as this record is concerned, what with the depression and the amount of money that was expended by Australian National Airways in uh, searching for that aeroplane, which they did to the ex full extent of their financial and other capability, they, uh, they went bankrupt. And that was the end of Australian National Airways. Uh, Charles Elm now had the conviction, still had the conviction, that the future of transportation, quick transportation, lay in the air. 
and he continued with his plans for the future in promoting ventures in that direction. So much so that being able to do the necessary calculations for the efficient operation of airplanes as far as speed, weight, ability to carry range, etc., I went and stayed in uh, Charles Alm House for quite a considerable time. Now, the guiding light behind Australian National Airways when it first started was uh, Charles Kingsford Smith. No, Charles Alm. Was Charles Alm. How did you find the two of them? How did I find Charles Alm and Kingsford Smith? Uh, well, we'll take Kingsford Smith to begin with. I found that that Kingsford Smith was a most admirable man. He, I did n- numerous flights with him. He recognised that I was a professional pilot and all that goes with it. And in the case where any uh, the trouble arose or argument, and 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 I said. All right, I will handle it over. He never questioned the matter. As a case in point, we were on a flight to England when we came to the Pyrenees on our way to Rome, the Apennines, beg your pardon. The snow clouds descended on the top of the hill and the weather was very rough. It was necessary, therefore, to cross those hills and still be able to see. And for that reason, we turned south and followed the hills parallel with the hills, looking for a gap to get through to the west coast of Italy. In due course, a glimmer of light came through a a pass, and we made for the pass. I was flying the aeroplane, and uh, climbing up the hillside to go through this gap, which was large enough to accommodate the aeroplane. We were so close to the ground I could see the stones and the snow between the stones and on the northerly side of the stones, it having melted on the southern side. When we came through the gap, the map, said that the sea would be below, would immediately below. The, the hillside was quite steep at that particular spot. When we came through the gap, I looked down the other side, and to my astonishment, all I could see was a big, flat snowfield. And while trying to correlate this flat, white uh, plain with... Uh, the sea that I ought to be seeing, the aeroplane did a, a half roll and made for the surface of the sea, which we recognised it then, the uh, semi upside down. I put on full opposite rudder, pulled the stick back and put on opposite aileron, and what happened was nothing. Just kept going the way it was going. The smithy was sitting beside me in the right-hand seat, and he turned round and looked at me. And I made that gesture that that was far ago. He put his hands on his wheel and tried it to see if it would go any further. It wouldn't. He took his hands away and put them in his pockets. Now that was quite a gesture. 
the aeroplane, all of a sudden big, if you can call it that, brought itself this side up with care, with a thud. In the meantime, it suddenly struck me that Wyndham Hewitt was in the back. What was he thinking of this? And I had sufficient time while the aeroplane was covering, recovering to turn round and look to see how Wyndham Hewitt was getting at the back. And he had hold of the six-inch filler tube in that uh, put petrol into the big tank in the fuselage with his arms clutched firmly round it and streamlined out uh, like a, a moon flyer weightless and the expression on his face was uh, portrayed something more than just astonishment however it was extremely rough and we got the aeroplane headed out to sea and pointed up somewhat north in the direction of Rome but the onshore wind was such that we were pointing many degrees out the sea and creeping slowly up the coast. Now that was uh, Charles Kingsford Smith. How did you find Charles Holm? Now, Charles Holm, of course, was not a pilot. Uh, he had done many hours in aeroplanes. He hadn't landed the, the uh, aeroplane that we were flying, the three-engined aeroplane. And he dearly loved to have done a solo flight in the aeroplane. The biggest aerodrome in the southern hemisphere was Christchurch, New Zealand. And during one flight in uh, New Zealand, one series of flights in New Zealand, he asked if I would let him take the aeroplane off and go round and land it. Bobby Bolton, the engineer, went with him and he did one circuit and he was then satisfied that he personally, by himself, had flown the aeroplane, taken it off, flown it around a circle and landed it and he never wanted to take it off or land it again after that. He was a very clever man. He was completely uh, Australian. He was thoroughly convinced that the future of, uh, of, of, of the, of the, of what the future of aviation was going to bring forth. He even calculated the amount of mail that would be carried on a flight from Australia to England long before it was done and the rate of build-up of the mail, and uh, and many others had made the same calculation. But his calculations on that were amazingly correct. Quite astonishing. How he did it, I don't know. Uh, my business in those days was mainly, mainly on how much weight would an aeroplane carry for so many miles with so much fuel. But what the forecast of the amount of numbers of people and numbers of freight, number of mail would be carried was a complete closed book to me in those days, but to him this was the kind of thing that he uh, was literally a genius. Would you say he was the commercial 
brain behind ANA. He undoubtedly was the commercial brain but behind the operation of ANA. There was no doubt about that. And such trust people had him that Sir Frederick Stewart, who ran the, the bus companies in Sydney at that time, became chairman of Australian National Airways and was also thoroughly convinced that with Charles Alm, Kingsford Smith and the team that it would indeed be more than successful. It would show the way to the future of air communications, no doubt about that. But it was the Depression that actually killed it. Well, he recognised the necessity that the public had to be uh, get confidence in aviation to be able to get on aeroplanes and others in high places had to be convinced of the effectiveness of aeroplanes. And this could only be done by doing these experimental or, if you like, record-making flights or, or fast flights, etc. In 1931, Australian National Airways became involved in collecting the first experimental airmail to be flown out from England. Uh, what was your part in this particular venture? With Kingsford Smith and myself, we took the Southern Cross to rescue the mail, we'll call it that, from Copang, where, unfortunately, the city of Cairo uh, had crashed on the, air, on the race course thinking it was flat. Uh, we flew from, uh, we flew to, uh, Copang, collected the mail, took it back to Darwin. It was then flown on by Qantas pilots, TAP, Scott, and others. And we collected then the Australian mail and flew that via Copang, Surabaya, Batavia, Singapore, Alastair, Calcutta, Rangoon, Akyab. Akyab, at Akyab, we met the uh, southern-bound Imperial Airways aeroplane, handed over the mail, and they, they took it then back to England, so completing that this experimental airmail service and then we took our aeroplane and flew it back to Sydney. Was this your first experience of crossing the Timor Sea? Uh, yes, I think it must have been. I can't re recollect any earlier crossing. Did it cause you any problems? Uh, we had no problems on it in those days. Maps, of course, were somewhat sketchy, but we had nautical charts. I noticed on a nautical chart that about 140 miles short of Copang, the continental shelf of Australia ended in about oh, less than 10 fathoms of water. But a few miles further on, the chart said it was some thousands of fathoms deep. And this struck me necess as necessarily must show on the surface as a landmark, and in fact it so proved. And so that we had no great problems from that point of view. How did you get the mail from the crashed aeroplane at Copang to your own machine? Uh, at uh, 
Kupang, there was an Indian who, well, a government servant of some kind in the Netherlands, Dutch East Indies at that, that time. He conscripted, if you like, uh, a, a, a number of natives. And it was maybe three, four miles further, possibly, by, by road, and brought the mail, uh, manhandled the mail to the aerodrome, loaded it onto the aeroplane. In what condition did you find the Imperial Airways aircraft? Well, the Imperial Airways aeroplane was a write-off, no doubt about that. There were jagged rocks on the uh, race course, which really made a hash of it. Though I must say... The, uh, the the pilot of the aeroplane must have gone down to a very slow speed before it struck, because the they themselves, though shaken, were not in fact hurt. Now, later in the same year, Australian National Airways tried its own all-Australian airmail to London. What was the thinking of the organisation in setting up this particular flight? It was intended by Charles Alm and others that this flight to us, uh, flight again was to show the feasibility of the transportation of mail and passengers uh, over long distances and so shortening the time. And uh, it was a lead-on, a lead-up, uh, and eventually an approach was to be made to the Australian government to set up a company which would handle just such a venture. That was the idea. First of all, to show that it could be done and do it in such a way that it was able to approach the Australian government with some confidence that aeroplanes could be and would be built capable of reliably performing along that route. You must remember at that time, it took six weeks from Australia to London. How did the flight itself go? Well, the, um, the, the response to the mail was far in excess of what uh, anybody expected that, to, to begin with. It wasn't expected there'd be that, as much mail as that, and so passengers were also invited to participate. And in fact, uh, uh, Colonel Brinsmead was one passenger, the other passenger since deceased. I won't mention his name. When I got to Brisbane, I realised that the aeroplane was already pretty severely loaded, and I told this passenger he couldn't come. He then got an injunction to restrain me from leaving Brisbane uh, without him, and I was approached by an eminent lawyer in the middle of the night uh, at the hotel. And he said, I couldn't leave. And I said, thank you very much. Goodbye, but I'm going just the same. Buzz off. So he buzzed off and I went just the same. Uh, Now, the the aeroplane was, uh, with the type of wing 
that is on was on the Southern Cross and on the Avro Ten, it uh, was able to take off at quite low speeds if you could drag it free of the ground. It could then get along on the ground cushion until it got sufficient speed to climb and then would go off. In those days, of course, of tail skids, the tail skid had to be got out of the mud should the airstrip be wet. And everything went well until we got to Kopang. At Kopang, the aeroplane was underwater, literally underwater. And we had taken off wet aerodromes before, and I knew exactly how far it would skitter along until I dragged it free of, you know, water, mud and the like, which are quite used to that kind of thing. And we, with the help of the Public Works Department of Kopang, a very enthusiastic gang, if I may say so, we manhandled the aeroplane onto a high piece of ground as far back as possible to get all the possible run, and we set off to take off. Halfway down the run, the sender engine wasn't functioning as it ought to. I think that's the nearest I can say, you know, at the moment. We weren't really getting the power we ought to be getting. Uh, by this time, of course, we were so near to the dike that you could do... There were two ways of getting into the, into the wet paddy field. One was to shut the engines and ensure, and the other one was push on the last little bit and hope you'd be able to drag it off the ground to be able to go the rest. However, it got off the ground enough to cross the, the big main dikes and landed in the mud in the, in the paddy field. So that was what happened there. Subsequently, it was found, uh, I had gone by this time, of course, subsequently it was found that uh, that the piston rings in one piston had broken and had scored and torn, you know, the, the side, of one side of the cylinder, you know, wall out and was partially seized, and that's why it didn't have the power. In the meantime, I communicated with Sydney, and Kingsford Smith arrived with the Southern Cross, and we loaded the mail onto the Southern Cross. By this time, a considerable amount of the water had drained off the Alastar trip, and instead of doing... Alastar, Kolkata, we did Alastar, Bangkok, Kolkata. We landed at Con uh, in Kolkata in a six inches or a foot of mud and uh, taxied to the uh, necessary stop. We loaded the aeroplane up to take off again, um, and me flying the aeroplane, and we were taken along a track hard, which, of which was hard ground under the the water to be able to take off, uh, you know, from the high part of Kolkata airstrip. Uh, in taxiing out at Kolkata, following the aerodrome's uh, jeep or whatever vehicle it was, uh, he took us along a hard part of the strip. But unfortunately, 
um, crossed the original circle which had now been removed and though the jeep went across it without any trouble we sank in the mud in the jeep and had to be dragged out by all the manpower around the place nevertheless we still had to go on and eventually we got the aeroplane inspected for any strains and uh, taken to the high spot and we got the aeroplane off the ground at night, uh, we finished up in Allahabad, having landed at Gaya in India in the meantime to refuel. Other than that, uh, all went well until we got to Lyon in France. On going out to the, uh, to the airport at Lyon to take off Lyon, London, the, a dense fog, uh, that you couldn't see ten yards. We hung around until such time as there was sufficient visibility to be able to see to get off. We had no uh, forecast for what was ahead or what was going on in London, but one would not expect the fog to extend all the way from Lyon to to beyond London, so that uh, by ab about t uh, 10 o'clock or thereby, we, 11.15 a.m., we took off, the fog having cleared sufficiently to let us get off the ground. But unfortunately, we never got clear of the fog, and we pursued a compass course uh, generally speaking for the, the English Channel and though we saw dimly various trees etc go past the visibility was never more than quarter of a mile at any time and we never did get above the fog and uh, the, the first we saw of anything was the English Channel uh, water coast heaving up and down. It was a dark fog, black fog, I suppose you might call it, not inspiring at all. So, so that having looked down at the beach on the northwest coast of France, it looked uh, pretty firm. And uh, we just, Smithy and I had a conference as to whether or not we should land on it and who should in fact land the aeroplane. And I said, well, I'm the pilot, I'll land the aeroplane if you think that uh, anything you see on your side looks as if the sand was soft, then you shove the throttles open and pull it back. And as far as I'm concerned, I can see from my side uh, what uh, uh, it looked wet and hard, as it always does, near the sea. The sea, as in a fog, no wind, the sea was quite calm. And we landed without any trouble at all. And at the place we landed at happened to be Latuke. And we taxied along the beach till we came to a hotel and turned at right angles up the beach and spent the night in the Hotel Bristol Lituki. Next morning we came out, the fog had uh, dissipated, we in attendance by large numbers of Frenchmen, 
girls, boys, children, the local gendarmerie, the factor, and anybody else who was about the place. We took off and pursued our way to the white cliffs of Dover, which very quickly came into view and landed at Heston in good shape. And Captain Allen, what took place before you started your homeward flight in 1931? Well, uh, the aeroplane was taken down to Hamble, where Saunders Row, a branch of Aviro, were doing an inspection on the aeroplane. They were delayed in getting the inspection finished. And when I went to collect the aeroplane, it wasn't quite ready. So I had to sit around while the day wore on. Nevertheless, the aeroplane had to go because all the arrangements had been made to depart from London at a certain time. So that in uh, when it became time to leave, it was obvious we wouldn't get to... Croydon before dark, so Saunders Row called Croydon and told them that the time that I would arrive over Croydon, it's very short distance from Southampton to Croydon, and uh, I took off with uh, a friend of mine uh, as the second pilot, and when we got over London, there was a vi no visibility. The fog was extremely dense. We flew on dead reckoning over where Croydon ought to have been, but uh, we saw no lights other than just a heterogeneous mass of lights, as you do normally. So we flew onwards beyond Croydon till we came to the Thames to check our position visually on the U-turns on the Thames. We went eastwards on the Thames in order to make sure that we would make a departure point on the Thames for Croydon at the right spot, which we did. Still no lights on Croydon. Uh, we then tried to fix a position somewhat nearer to Croydon to make sure that we were right. And I went, saw a railway station. I went down and read the name on the, pa on the, on the railway station. And I said to Cecil Melbourne, who is a Londoner, the name of that station was Petswood. Where is that? And he said, never heard of it. And the strange thing about it, that Pets Wood was opened that week. And so that therefore he hadn't heard of it and it wasn't on the map. So having uh, gone round for some time and without Croydon appearing, we, uh, we then set a DR course for Kent and... Having arrived at Kent, which is fairly flat, uh, we then did circles to find a space in which there were as few lights as possible because we didn't want to land in somebody's cottage. We made several attempts at closing that type of circle with no lights inside it without a great deal of success. But finally, 
I, we made one circle where there were very few, if any, lights. And having decided that that would land uh, in this particular area, uh, I then got down as low as possible and saw the tree silhouetted against the sky because even on the darkest night there was always light of some kind. Having come to a row of trees, I hauled the aeroplane up over the trees, shut off the ignition with the throttles, etc., and landed on the other side. A very good landing was made in the paddock. The aeroplane ran along for a distance till it was up just stopping when it ran into a f into young Newtown Pippin apple trees and knocked 25 apple trees over and broke two propellers. The aeroplane was removed by Aviro in very quick time with a team, of a very highly skilled team who came along with a truck and a platform, semi-trailer we call them these days, and with a single uh, pole with a block and tackle on it, removed the wing, removed the fuselage and drove off well, very undramatically. Uh, in due course, the aeroplane was all fixed up again and we were then ready to sit back off back to Estrella with the mail. How did the homeward uh, voyage go? Well, the homeward voyage was l relatively uneventful. The points we call that are recorded elsewhere in the, in, in the transcript. Uh, except that when we got to Copang, the weather was extremely bad. January, of course, is about the worst time of the year to be in the Darwin uh, Copang area because the monsoon are, uh, is about at that time. The, we took off, actually managed to get off from Copang, uh, but it took us so long to get to the reef and the visibility was so bad, not because of cloud, but because the rain made it very difficult to see where we, what was going on at all. And we were getting very wet since the cockpit was relatively open. And we decided to go back again and we went back to Copenhagen Landing. Next day, we got off with a bit better performance, we left the luggage behind, you know, not the mail, just our own personal luggage and some spare parts that weighed a bit, uh, and uh, got off the aerodrome. Uh, in fact, the aeroplane skid was still on the ground when the wheels left the ground. And as I've said before, the wing section of this aeroplane is such that once you get off, if you can uh, have enough space to get a bit of speed, the aeroplane took off. And we arrived at Darwin without any further trouble. The aeroplane then pursued its way via Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne to Hobart, where it originated and so finished the first airmail flight to between England and Australia. Did you find there was a lot of publicity in the Australian press over this flight? Oh yes, there was a lot of publicity. And uh, 
many photographs were taken. Uh, the philatelic uh, people. Uh, I, I, at one particular time, I signed 500 envelopes. Uh, uh, the envelopes that, that were used on this flight, however, were of a peculiar type of yellow paper and bigger than usual, so that I don't think that a very great number of them would uh, would last unless they were fairly carefully looked after. And these being very early days in the airmail philatelic section, I notice a great number of envelopes that I've seen since that it wasn't realised what their actual importance was in the philatelic scene, and they've deteriorated very badly. Uh, Captain Allen, in October 1933, you, with uh, Charles Alm, set up a new record between London and Australia. Uh, how did this flight come about? Sir, since we were unable to continue our flight round the world, our conception was to fly by to Australia as quickly as possible and create uh, fast times if we possibly could. This was facilitated because the aeroplane being fitted out for long uh, hours in the air, we were able to fly London-Athens, Athens-Baghdad, Baghdad-Karachi. Uh, we arrived at Karachi two days, 11 hours, 44 minutes uh, since leaving London, which in itself was a record. We then carried on but the rest of the flight, arriving at Derby in Australia at 10 minutes to midnight. In doing so, had a, a record fast trip from England to Australia uh, under one week, six days, 17 hours, 56 minutes. Captain Allen, when you came to England in 1937, uh, you went on a course to convert yourself to flying boats. Uh, what took place in this course? Well, the first part of the course consisted of uh, learning seamanship, and this was done by hiring a seven-ton yacht from a captain who owned it in the Hamble River, and we uh, sailed his yacht uh, to various places around the south coast of, of England. Being Australians, of course, we were no great trouble to the good captain to teach to, uh, as, to teach us uh, to handle the yacht because most of us were fairly adept at it in the first place. And this really consisted of a very nice holiday. And then... We then uh, uh, were instructed in the actual seagoing or waterborne aircraft by air service training also at Hamble, and did our training on uh, Cutty Sark and uh, Arangun. The, the training was very thorough, no doubt about that. 
uh, and uh, even down to towing, the, the uh, being in charge while the airplane was being towed, towed, taxiing on the water with one or several engines stopped, etc. After a period with Imperial Airways, I believe you commanded the first flying boat to be flown back to Australia for Qantas. We had left on March 18, 1938, from Hythe with VHABB, the Kulangata, uh, with the, the, the a crew, uh, flying officer Perton, the radio operator was Patterson, the engineer was Kid KYDD, and Aldous was the flight engineer. Aldous has just retired as assistant chief engineer of uh, for Qantas. Eric Kidd has just retired on the same date, having been in charge of the, the aircraft part of our mascot complex. Patterson was killed during the war and uh, Willie Perton was killed bringing refugees back in flying boats from Singapore to, uh, to Australia during the last war. The flight was literally uneventful uh, and the Qantas headquarters at that time uh, where was in Brisbane, and we arrived in Brisbane on April the 2nd. And Captain Allen, after the war, you were involved in the um, processes which ended in Qantas acquiring the Constellation. Uh, could you give me the background to this? Uh, after the war, there were literally... Uh, no commercial aeroplanes av available. Great Britain was very slow to produce anything at all. They had, of course, uh, modified the Lancastrian and the Tudor to, to become the Tudor, which was to be a commercial aeroplane. The fact of the matter was that the Tudor was uh, not good enough by a long way. So that on Qantas, uh, were, uh, d decided, you know, not to take the Tudor as an aeroplane, and I was ordered to go to the United States and examine the various aeroplanes there for Qantas uses. What did you find was wrong with the Tudor yourself when you went to see the aircraft? You hear, uh, that is on the record, isn't it? What was wrong with the Tudor? Well, the Tudor was a modification of the Lancastrian, and it had uh, was originally designed to carry a payload a certain range. During the construction of the Tudor, various parts had continuously to be modified, which added weight to the aeroplane, and as a result thereof, uh, detracted from the, the either the range or the payload or both. 
It became fairly obvious while this was going on that the aeroplane, if it was to do anything, were more likely to deteriorate in those two respects than be able to meet the Qantas original requirements of payload range necessary of course, in the case of Qantas, because the routes that we travel have widely spaced aerodromes with no possibility of putting intermediate aerodromes in between. As a result thereof, I was ordered to the United States to have a look at the available aircraft that they had, were building at that time. Douglas were having a follow-on, uh, a pressurised form of the DC-4, which was the DC-6. Lockheed were started with an aeroplane called the O-49, but the model that we, Qantas, decided upon was the 749. The aeroplane after the DC-6 was to be the DC-7 which was not a very impressive aeroplane at all. And in Qantas, we have to keep looking to the future, you know, for a follow-on. Whereas the Constellation, equal in performance, payload range, etc., with the DC-6, did in fact have a, have a future, as developed later on, as can be seen with the 1049 and other subsequent models. So, having decided on the 749, the government of Australia at that time, having bought the shares in Qantas, and it was a government-owned concern by this time, permitted us to buy an absolute minimum number. But when the aeroplane being built showed that it was going to be a good aeroplane, we were permitted to increase the number of aeroplanes in the first instance to two. There must have been some disappointment in BOAC that Qantas went its own way, uh, whereas, of course, there was pressure within England for Imperial Airways to go for the Tudor. Well, I was... Uh, I, the pressure on BOAC to buy the Tudor may or may not have been pressure. I wouldn't know about that. But I do know that BOAC and its staff were, of course, intensely loyal to Great Britain and British manufacture. And it wasn't until the Tudor really failed them, you can only put it that way, that they were forced into uh, also buying the Constellation. 